Well, if you got a bulletin and you saw the title of the sermon, I wonder if that title intrigues you in some way, where I speak of bringing arguments to God, bringing arguments to God. That word argument generally has a, a negative connotation in our hearing, doesn't it? When you think of arguing or arguments, you think of people in contention, people angry, people with animosity, maybe raised voices, and maybe an argument resulting in broken relationships. Arguments definitely are not good things as we understand them. But you know what? Strictly speaking, to argue means to present reasons for or against a thing, to state the reasons for or against. And so in that case, to argue may not be a bad thing. If the cause or the truth in favor of which you are arguing is a good one, and if in your speaking, you are speaking in a manner that is gracious and kind, and if your motive is, as it always should be, love for God and love for your neighbor and not trying to advance some self-concern, then in that sense, argument is not a bad word. But what about arguing with God? You think it's a good idea to argue with God? Well, let me suggest that the answer to that question is, it all depends. It all depends. I think we would all agree that to argue with God in the sense of contending with God or finding fault with God, either because of his personal dealings with us or in a more general way, why does God allow all the evil that he allows in the world? Why has God only chosen some people to be saved and not everyone? Why are God's judgments such as hell so severe? If arguing with God means contending with God and finding fault with God, I think we would all agree that's not a wise thing. It is a foolish and futile thing to raise our little finite fists at almighty God the all-wise and eternal God. To argue with God in that sense is not advisable. But brothers and sisters, there are arguments that can be brought to God that honor him. Reasonings that appeal to the things in God or about God that actually bring him glory. It is those reasonings and those arguments that we want to talk about this morning. I'm bringing to you a brief series on prayer, and I, I wanted to establish that we should pray. God wants us as men and women, boys and girls, if we are believers, to be people of prayer individually, and he wants us to be a church of prayer. God wants us to pray. But last week we saw that God's concerned not only that we pray, but what we pray. He's concerned that we pray rightly, that our prayers be in line with his will as revealed in his word. And there's no better way to shape and pattern our prayers than after the example of Jesus and the apostles and the way they prayed, and that's what we looked at last week. But now I want to begin to call your attention to how we should pray. This morning, how to bring arguments to God in prayer that honor him and carry weight with him. You see, the very language of bringing arguments to God in prayer is biblical language. Listen to a couple of statements from the book of Job. 
In Job 13.3, Job says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Now, your King James or your new King James is going to use the word reason. In 13.15 of Job, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's a famous verse. But then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And your King James is going to say, I... It talks about, I will defend my own ways or maintain my own ways before him. But in Job 23, 3 and 4, we read, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And every translation has the word arguments. What are we to make of this? Well, Job was suffering horribly. And his friends, though well-intentioned, didn't get it. They thought that Job was suffering because of his own personal sin. And we're tipped off early in the book to the fact that that's not true, right? He's not suffering because of his sins. And so his friends are coming at him with accusations, and Job is wearied with that. He wants refuge from his friends, and he's thinking, if only I could come before God. If I could bring my case, present my case to God, God will understand. God will vindicate me. And that very word in Hebrew, the words argue and argument, has to do with, it's a forensic word. They're forensic words. It has to do with arguing in the court of law. In Psalm 50, 21, the verse is used when it says, these things God is saying, you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. God's saying to Israel, I'm going to bring a legal case against you because of your sins. It's also used in Isaiah 118, where God says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. So it's biblical to bring arguments to God in prayer. And this is what the saints of old did. Although they come boldly to God in prayer, they did not come carelessly, haphazardly, or without preparation. As we're going to see, they brought reasoned arguments to God, pleading their case with God. Now, again, by arguments, we're not talking about pitting our will against God, but we're talking about bringing arguments that are in line with the will of God and the desires of God. Frankly, arguments that God delights to hear and really wants to honor. We're going to look at five arguments that have been powerfully used in approaching God by the saints of old and should be used by us today, because we have the same God. We're going to look primarily at a couple of prayers made by Moses. Moses, you may know, was one of the great prayers in the Old Testament. He was one whose prayers were especially powerful. Listen to Jeremiah 15.1. The prophet Jeremiah says, Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, My heart would not be with this people. You see what that's saying? The people of God were slated for judgment. It's too late for prayer. But he says, even if Samuel and Moses, two of the great intercessors, two of the great prevailers with God in prayer, even if they were to pray for you, it's too late. But it indicates that Moses was a mighty man of prayer, a mighty man of intercession. 
And so let's look at a couple of prayers of Moses. And by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. I'm going to front load the sermon with scripture. Then we're going to draw those five arguments from those scriptures. Okay, so bear with me as we read a bit of scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And here's the picture. While Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, the people down below prevail upon his brother Aaron to make a, a representation of Yahweh in the form of a golden calf. It is idolatry. It's a violation of the second commandment. Listen to Exodus 32, 2 to 4, 3 and 4. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your... And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Gross idolatry, saying Yahweh's represented by a golden calf. Now Moses is up on the mountain, and he doesn't know what's going on. But God tips him off to what's happening down below. So we pick up in verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone. This is God speaking that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a, a great nation. So God tells Moses what's happening and what he's purposing to do. I'm sick and tired of these people. I'm ready to wipe them out. Now listen to the prayer of Moses, beginning at verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of, of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Moses prayed and we're going to draw some arguments from that prayer. Was it a prayer that God honored? Yes. God heard him, and he withdrew his plan to judge the people. Now turn to Numbers 14. In the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in the Pentateuch, called Pentateuch because penta means five. There are five books of Moses. This is the fourth, the book of Numbers. And the scene here is that 12 spies have been sent into the land of Canaan. When they come out, 10 of them are fearful and lamenting. I pick up at 13, chapter 13, verse 27. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. 
Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the, the side of the Jordan. And uh, they go on to say in verse 33, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we were... And so we were in their sight. And so 10 of the spies come back and say, trembling and fearful, like it's, it's intimidating, it's overwhelming. And as a result of giving that report, the people are in mutiny mode. Coming to chapter 14, we read, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or, that, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the, the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Let's get rid of Moses and let's point somebody else and haul back to Egypt. We pick up at verse 10. Joshua and Caleb, however, are people of faith. Those men said, no problem. God promised it. We can do it. You notice that there are a lot of kids named Joshua and Caleb, right? because they were heroes of faith. And there are Caleb's and Joshua's that we all know. But after they expressed their faith, we read in verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Now God shows up. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. I will smite them with, yeah, than they. Okay. So the Lord, again, he's fed up with his people. He's ready to destroy them. Now listen to the prayer of Moses, beginning at verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength, you brought up this people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means leave the guilt, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And God spared them. From these two prayers, we want to draw five powerful arguments 
before God in prayer. And the first is this, appeal to God's praise or God's glory. Appeal to God's praise or God's glory. Back in Exodus 32, Moses said, why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? And in Numbers 14, which we just read, Moses said, now if you do slay the people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your name will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, what's going on here? What is Moses' argument? Moses is here appealing to something that is very near and dear to God. That is his praise, his glory, his name, his fame, his reputation. Moses is saying, Lord, if you kill the people here, what will the Egyptians think? What will the nations think? that you were not able to bring them into the land you promised to them. Lord, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of your glory, don't do that. And God hears his prayer. How jealous is God for his glory? Isaiah 42a, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 43.11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There was an event in the history of Israel where the Arameans, or the Syrians, dared to make this boast against Yahweh, the God of Israel. 1 Kings 20, 28. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Get the picture. Pagan deities were local deities, right? Little local deities. And so the Syrians come and they say, the God of Israel, he's a God of the mountains. And if we fight them on the mountains, we're going to lose because their God's the God of the mountains. But if we get him in the valleys, he's not the God of the valleys. We'll whoop him there. Friends, when you hear the name of God being affronted in that way, you say, whoa, whoa, what did you just say? Do you know what the next verse says? And the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans a 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. They dared to compare God to a, a local pagan deity God of the mountains, he can cover the mountains, but he can't cover the valleys. And God is jealous to be known as the one living and true God who's not the God of the mountains or valleys. He's the God of, of heaven and earth. And he showed it by showing his jealousy on this occasion. His name, his fame, his glory, his praise is something that God, God guards very jealously. You know, God forgave David of his sins of adultery and murder. But you know what he said? Because by this deed, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is born to you shall surely die. David, I forgive you. But because what you did has blasphemed my name, your child's going to die. The Apostle Paul says to his fellow Jews in Romans 2.24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
Because you're the people who claim to know God and you're living as hypocrites. And God's name is being tarnished because of you. And so, do you want power with God in prayer? Argue with God for the sake of his glory and praise. Here's an example. Lord, be with us in our marriage. Lord, I'm called to love my wife as Christ loves the church, but I'm not doing a very good job. Lord, I'm called to to respect my husband and submit to him, but he kind of ticks me off and, and I'm not doing very well. But Lord, marriage is not only for our companionship and fulfillment, the gospel is represented in our marriage. Because as a husband, I'm to represent Christ and his love. As a wife, I'm to represent the church. And the very gospel is at issue in the state of my marriage. And so for the sake of your glory in the gospel, help us in our marriage. Lord, save my children. Save my father, save my mother, save my brother, save my friend. Save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation because you get all the glory because salvation is of the Lord. First argument before God, appeal to his praise or his glory. Second argument, God's person or his attributes. Back in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord had revealed himself to Moses in this way. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, notice how Moses prays in Numbers 14. Here are his words as we read them. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Moses is reminding God of who God says he is. I'm a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. You see what Moses' argument is. Lord, you have said about yourself that you're a kind, compassionate God, a God of loving kindness, a God of forgiveness. Now, Lord, will you show it now by forgiving these people who have so provoked you He's arguing with God on the basis of God's own character or attributes. Abraham did the same thing, and this will save us a little time because in God's providence, our brother Mike read Genesis 18. And you see what happens there. God comes down on a fact-finding mission. Not that he didn't know, but he wanted to establish it, that Sodom was really a wicked city. Sodom is slated for judgment. And he decides to share it with Abraham. You know, Abraham, I think he's the only person in the Bible who's called the friend of God. And remember what Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples, I don't treat you as slaves, but as friends. A slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I treat you like friends. So I'm going to tell you what's what's happening. Friends share with friends, right? Friends make friends privy to what's happening. And, And Abraham's a friend of God, so God's going to tell Abraham what he's about to do. I'm about to destroy Sodom. Now, Abraham had a stake in Sodom because his nephew, as selfish as Lot might have been, was in in Sodom. He had a vested interest. One of my loved ones is in Sodom. So God says, I'm going to destroy it. What does Abraham do? Lord, 
There are 50 people. Will you spare? How can you, God, condemn the righteous along with the wicked? Shall not the, all, all, the judge of all the earth do justly? What is Abraham doing? He's appealing to the character or attribute of God, God's justice. If we have a judge who treats the righteous and the wicked equally, you say, that's a corrupt judge, right? He's condemning, he's treating them equally. You have to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, according to Proverbs. But God is not like that. God is just. And so Abraham says, Lord, you're a just God. You can't, in your justice, you can't destroy the righteous along with the wicked. So if there are 50 righteous, and then you know what Abraham does. Lord, if there are 45, and with great reverence and deference and humility, he, he gets God down from 45 to 30 to 20, finally down to 10. And God agrees, if there are 10 people, I won't destroy it. Fact is, there weren't 10, there were only eight, and God destroyed Sodom. But you see Abraham's argument, Lord, you're the God of all the earth, and you must do justly. I'm arguing with you on the basis of your justice. And so, that's another powerful argument with God, appealing to God on the basis of his person or his character. Lord, I'm being dealt with unjustly, I'm being taken advantage of, Lord. I'm being falsely accused of something that I didn't do. God of justice, Will you vindicate me, and will you bring about justice in this matter? Lord, you're a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Will you therefore have mercy upon this wicked person or that? Lord, you're the author of life. Will you look upon the wicked murder that's being committed millions of times over by babies being aborted? And Lord, will you put an end to it? Lord, you're the God who has ordained the genders, and they are only two. And you see the moral wickedness of our day. Lord, will you bring people to repentance? Will you bring us revival? Appealing to God on the basis of his character. Here's a third argument with God, God's promises. Back in Exodus 32, 13, Moses says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you did swear by yourself and did say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. What is Moses doing there in that same prayer? He's reminding God of the promise he made to the forefathers Lord, you said that you're going to multiply this people. They're going to be like the stars of the heavens, and you're going to give them the land. If you wipe them out now, what will become of your promise? Lord, you promised. Jacob, turn your attention to another one. Back in Genesis 32, Jacob was a deceiver, and he had tricked his brother out of his blessing and out of the birthright, and so much so that Rebecca, his mother, got him out of Dodge. He, before your brother does you harm, he sent him to her brother Laban, sent him to his brother Laban's. And, and for years, Jacob and Esau were separated. The last dealing they had with each other, Jacob had deceived his brother. And now all of a sudden, Esau is coming to meet Jacob. And Jacob has a big family now. And what's he thinking? 
my brother is still ticked off. He is angry and he is vengeful. And so we read in Genesis 32, I'll begin at verse 6, Genesis 32. We were in Exodus 32. This is Genesis 32, 6. The messengers, Jacob sent out uh, some messengers to, to check out what's happening with Esau. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You see, what is Jacob's plea? Lord, my brother's coming. As far as I know, he is still ticked off. He's got 400 men. I've got women and children and cattle here, and we are easy. Pray for them to protect ourselves. We'll divide into two companies, so if he attacks one, at least one will be spared. But he says, Lord, protect me from my brother because, Lord, you said I will prosper you and make your descendants like the sand of the sea. Lord, you promised. And if you go on to read, when they connected, Esau falls on his neck and they weep. He didn't have vengeful motives. But again, you see him appealing to God's promise. Now, you as parents, I think, can relate to that. You have children, and sometimes maybe you'll say to your children, if you complete your schoolwork, or if you do this certain chore or finish this project, Oh, we're going to give you a little reward. Uh, maybe we'll take you to the playground to play, or maybe we'll take you to a concert or take you fishing or take you out for ice cream, whatever suits the child, right? And then you forget about it. But your child comes to you and says, Dad, remember you promised. Mom, you promised. Oh, yeah. And if you're a man or woman of integrity, as you all are, you're going to say, of course, I've got to make good on that promise. My yes means needs to be yes to my children. But you know what? Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give what is good to those who are his? If you make good on your promises, how much more will God be good for his? He is the God who cannot lie. And so here's another argument with God that is bound to prevail, reminding him of his promise. Lord, you promise. And there are so many. Let me just rattle off a few. Matthew 6, 33. Don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. How we are tempted with anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise. 
and the peace of God that transcends comprehension, understanding, will guard, militarily guard your heart in Christ Jesus. James 1.5, the older I get, the more I pray this prayer. If any lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously, and it will be given him without reproaching. And so, argue with God according to his promises. That does not dishonor him. That honors him because he's the God who will and wants to make good on his promises. Here's the fourth of five. Arguing with God based on what he did in the past, his past actions. Exodus 32, 11, that we already read. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Lord, consider what you've done in the past. These are your people. Earlier, God had said, Moses, your people. And God throws it back at him. No, Lord, your people, whom you brought out from the land of Egypt. Lord, look at what you did in the past. You brought them out of Egypt with great power. Lord, consider all that you have already done for this people, all that you already have invested in them. Would you destroy them now? Numbers 14, 13, that other prayer. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you did bring up this people from their midst. And in that same prayer, verse 19, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is arguing with God based on what God did in the past. Lord, in the past, you delivered them mightily. In the past, you forgave them. How many times did you have to forgive them in the past? Will you do it again? As you have done it in the past, will you do it again? You know, David used that argument before God in his prayers in the Psalms. Psalm 27, 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. God, you've helped me in the past. Don't abandon me now. And in Psalm 71, 17 and 18, and I can relate to this. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, Oh, God, do not forsake me. You've been my God. You've been faithful to me from my youth. Now I'm old. Now I'm gray. Continue to be faithful. This, too, is an argument in our arsenal, appealing to God based on what he's done in the past. So I ask you, what challenge are you facing now? Can you think of the ways that God has been faithful to you in the past? Well, he's the God who changes not. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 1.10 of God who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. The God who has delivered us in the past, he will deliver us again. You might say, Lord, I'm out of work. I need work and income to support my family, but I've been here before. And at just the right time, you provided just the right job. Lord, I need you to provide again. Lord, our marriage has been going through a crazy cycle. You know what Emerson Egerich talks about? The crazy cycle. I'm not loving my wife as I ought to love her. 
And she's not respecting me as she ought to because I'm not loving her. And we're in this downward crazy cycle. And I feel my heart is hard toward her, toward him. But Lord, we've been in the crazy cycle before. We've been here before. And you've always spun us out into the energizing cycle. You somehow have granted repentance and enabled us to confess our sins and be restored and hug again and go on. You've helped us in the past. Here we are again, needing your help. The final argument with God is God's pity. God's pity. Exodus 32, 7 and 11 Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now notice how God says, Moses, they're your people who who you brought up, but Moses dares to turn it around on God. And in verse 11, he says, then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt. You see that? God says, they're your people, Moses. You know, like a father or mother might say, when a kid's disobeying, he's your son, it's your daughter, <laughs> right? If you ever said that, parent? It's your son, your daughter. And Mo- God is saying, Moses, you, your people, you brought, no, God says, no, no, God, they're your people, and you brought them out. And we read of God's great pity toward his people. Why? Did he bring them out? Exodus 2, 23 and 25. This is where God's pity began when they're in Egypt enslaved. And we read, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and he took notice of them. Chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction in my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. And in chapter 3, and verse 10, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God is a God who has pity upon his people. We're almost done Well, let me point you to another signal example of God's great pity, compassion. I'm going to turn you for a moment to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And here we have that dear woman of God, Hannah. And Hannah was heart sick because she was unable to bear a child. And her counterpart, who was in one of the reasons God said one man, one woman, but her counterpart, Panina, was having children, and she was mocking Hannah, the other wife, because um, of Elkanah, because she couldn't have children. And so in 1 Samuel 1, 9 to 12, we overhear Hannah's cry. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction, the affliction of your maidservant, and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come 
upon his head. Now, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching um, her mouth. And then what follows is interaction between her and Eli. And Eli thinks she's drunk, but she explains in verse 15. Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now um, out of my great concern and provocation. Note the language that Hannah uses in her inability to have a child. Greatly distressed, bitter of soul, she wept bitterly. Affliction, oppressed in spirit, great concern in my provocation. How does Yahweh regard the prayer of Hannah? Verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah and Elkanah, had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and named him Samuel because I've asked him of the Lord. An illustration of God's great pity and compassion. So here's another argument that we have that carries weight with God. He's a God of compassion and pity. And even as we pray this morning for Myanmar and those orphans in that compound with bombing and murdering going on all around them, how God has answered and preserved them miraculously in that place. Why? In part because he's a God of great pity and compassion. And he has special objects, as we noted this morning, orphans, widows, etc., the oppressed, special argument, objects of his pity and compassion. So, five arguments to bring before God in prayer. Before we close, how does the Lord Jesus factor into this? Let me share with you how. When we come to argue on the basis of the, of, of the glory of God. God gets no greater glory than he does in the work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in his doxology, to him, God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. You want to appeal to the glory of God? There's no greater glory that comes to God than through the salvation that comes through Jesus. When we argue the person or the attributes of God, no attribute of God is greater than his love as shown in the sending of Jesus to die for sinners. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we argue the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for as many as may be the promises of God, in him, Christ, they are yes. All of the promises of God are fulfilled because of Jesus Christ. If he hadn't done his work of mediation, we would be nothing but the objects of God's wrath. So all of his promises come to us and are fulfilled through Jesus. And then when we argue God's past faithfulness, the greatest event that God has ever done in the past is the sending of his son to die for sinners. And if he loves you enough to die for you, will he not with him give you other gifts? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him give you all things? 
So if he loved you to do that greatest thing in the past and sending his son, he'll give you many more things. And when we think of God's pity, the greatest expression of God's pity is in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of his great love and the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. No greater expression of pity than in Jesus Christ and his salvation. So, brothers and sisters, we have arguments to bring to God in prayer. Let us come with a well-prepared suit, appealing to these things that carry weight with God, arguing with him in ways that honor and glorify him. And then I say a final word if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer this morning, you need to be, and you have good grounds to plead for salvation And here, let me put some words in your unbelieving mouth. God, save me for the sake of your praise and glory. Because when a sinner saved, God gets all the glory. We cannot save ourselves. Your friends, your loved ones can't save you. God gets all the glory. Save me for your glory's sake. God, save me because you're a compassionate, gracious, and merciful God. And I need mercy. God, save me because you have promised that all who believe in your Son will have eternal life. God, save me because of what you've done in the past. You have saved countless millions, hundreds of millions of people in the past. Many of them were sinners than me. Surely you can save me. And God, look at me in the misery and slavery and bondage that I am in to my sin Have pity on me and save me. My unbelieving friend, you're on good grounds to ask God to save you. May you do that today. Let's pray and sing. Father, thank you for the examples of these prayers. Help us to lay hold of them and to argue with you, not to contend and disagree with you, but to bring you these arguments that honor you, that you delight to hear and delight to answer. Help us, Lord, to pray in these ways. We ask in Jesus' name.